Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. What is it, Sheriff? You seem down. Well, Deputy Sergeant, it's just that the fine people of this good town keep disappearing. Something is getting them. It saddens me that I can't figure out who or what's doing it. Do you have any leads? I keep thinking it might be connected to the ice cream shop. Or the library. Maybe that squinty-eyed librarian. I don't know. I got this bad feeling about her. What about that uh, mysterious plant on the edge of town? You mean Glencore Blackwater Treadstone, a highly secretive corporation accountable to no one? (laughs) I don't think so, Deputy Sergeant. They seem like real nice, decent folks. They're always so polite, and, you know, I feel bad for them because all the protective equipment they always got to wear. Yeah, but it's, it's right there in their name. Glencore Bridgewater Treadstone, a highly secretive corporation accountable to no one. I think that's just some, what do they call it, uh, like a branding thing. It don't mean no, never mind. But they have those big signs up all along the perimeter fence. Do not trespass. Sticky monsters loose on premises. Well, that's just it, ain't it, Deputy Sergeant? I mean, if they had anything to do with these awful disappearances... Would they be so upfront and honest about all the sticky monsters they got? Whereas the Presbyterian Church in town, nobody knows what goes on in there. Uh, yeah, but but the plan... Now, I'm going to stop you right there. When you've been a policeman as long as I have, you get kind of a, uh, what is it called? It's like an instinct for people, and, and these are real nice folks. Well, if you say so. You'll see, Deputy Sergeant. You'll make a fine policeman yet. Oh, I'm not a police officer. My mother watched a lot of mystery shows when she was pregnant, so she named me Deputy Sergeant. Deputy Sergeant Trumblebuffer. Oh, well, then where do you work? At the big gated industrial complex the next town over. Human Dismemberment Associates. And what is it you folks do? We make cuckoo clocks. That's swell. I love those little things. Hey, do you figure you can get me a real nice cuckoo clock at some kind of discount? Let's talk about that during this radio show. And now he keeps wondering why Jason Bourne won't turn himself in if he didn't do nothing bad. I wonder that, too. Colin McEnroe. All right. That's not exactly what happens in Stranger Things, uh, which is uh, if something can be a hit on Netflix, which is something that we are going to discuss, a hit on Netflix. This is uh, set in the 1980s. uh, As critic Dana Stevens called it, a highly citational movie uh, or, or, excuse me, eight-part series. Very bingeable, quoting from uh, all kinds of uh, Stephen King folios and uh, works of Steven Spielberg and Rob Reiner. It is the story uh, of a group of boys, one of whom disappears uh, in a very uh, 80s, 1980s. 83 setting in Indiana, uh, and the other boys are riding around in their banana bikes trying to figure out uh, what happened to their friend. Uh, meanwhile, a mysterious visitor with superpowers winds up uh, hidden in one of their houses, concealed in a closet, uh, engaging in kind of monosyllabic uh, speech 
with uh, words like good and bad being used a lot. Uh, and does any of this sound familiar to you? Does any of this sound like a movie you might have seen before? <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> this uh, Stranger Things is a uh, eight-part series, as we say, by the Duffer Brothers. Uh, and it is a lot of things that you've seen to, uh, before. A lot of people seem to really like seeing it this way, retold this way. So joining us to talk about that and later on to talk about some scandalous in several senses reporting from Rio uh, are Teresa Kramer, a writer and editor for eContent Magazine and the founding editor of The Cut, an online magazine for disgruntled uh, Connecticut uh, young adults. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to – if you just Google that, though, mm-hmm. you get like the fashion thing from New York Magazine Yeah, or I didn't you know any, that like, sort of, Do you have any SEO stuff for people who want to find like your The Cut? I'll work on that. Okay. I'll work on that. Yeah, <laughs> just SEO put in like Hartford or something. Yeah, I'm sure right. we write about Hartford, that. Hartford, comma, disgruntled. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That'll get a lot of hits. <laughs> actually, I tried, I tried typing, typing in Asian Persuasion, The Cut, and I got yeah. like a whole bunch of websites that I was really <laughs> sorry I didn't. Uh, anyway, uh, John Dankosky is executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and the host of the brand new Next, uh, which is terrific uh, and which airs on uh, Thursdays at 2, 2 p.m., right? 2 p.m.? 2 p.m. Yeah, 2 p.m. Uh, and he's also uh, with me on the wheelhouse at WNPR. Uh, Carolyn Payne uh, uh, is an actress, comedian, dancer, uh, founder, cat her director, choreographer uh, of Connecticut Kinetic Dance. And uh, if I tried to come up with all the other things that she is, we'd be here a long time. So um, let's just hear a, a little bit before we plunge in. This is uh, – it's going to be uh, the, number, the first clip for you, Wolfie. Uh, let's just hear – this is Winona Ryder. This is the opposite of an all-star cast. Uh, it's, <laughs> its headliners are Winona Ryder and Matthew Modine. And after that, it falls off very sharply from Winona Ryder and Matthew Modine. It falls off sharply. Think about that. Uh, and this is uh, from the first episode. Uh, Winona Ryder, as the mother Joyce, is trying to convince the disheveled uh, Sheriff Hopper, uh, a man in deep need of a wellness program of some kind uh, that her son, Will, is missing. I have been waiting here over an hour, Hopper. And I apologize again. I'm going out of my mind. Look, boy his age, he's probably just playing hooky. Okay? No, not my Will. He's not like that. He wouldn't do that. No, you never know. I mean, my mom thought I was on the debate team, and really I was just screwing Chrissy Garvin during the back of my dad's old deal, so... Look, he's not like you, Hopper. He's not like me. He's not like most. He, he has a couple of friends, but, you know, kids, they're, they're mean. They make fun of him. They call him names. They, they laugh at him. His clothes. His clothes? What's wrong with his clothes? I don't know. Does that matter? Maybe. Look, he's... He's a sensitive kid. Lonnie, Lonnie used to say he was queer. Called him a fag. Is he? He's missing, is what he is. When was the last time you heard from Lonnie? Uh, last I heard, he was in Indianapolis. That was about a year ago. But he has nothing to do with this. Right, why don't you give me his number? You know, Hopper, he has nothing to do with this. Trust Joyce, me. Joyce, 99 out of 100 times, kid goes missing. The kid is with a parent or a relative. What about the other time? What? You said 99 out of 100. What about the other time? Joyce. The one. The one. Joyce, this is Hawkins. 
okay? You want to know the worst thing that's ever happened here in the four years I've been working here? Do you want to know the worst thing? It was when an owl attacked Eleanor Gillespie's head because it thought that her hair was a nest. <laughs> well, much, much worse things involving sticky monsters uh, are about to happen in lovely Hawkins. So, uh, Teresa Gramer, uh, set this up for us a little bit more. One of the things that's happening here, this, at least among a certain subset of the Amer- American public, this really has become a thing, and a lot of people are watching it. A lot of people are enjoying talking about it after they watch it. Um, there's some way in which people are grooving uh, on Stranger Things. Um, you have any theories about this? I think it's it's probably all about nostalgia. It's a good enough show, but it's n- not so amazing. You're not like, oh, did you see what happened on Stranger Things? It's more about you just being like, oh, look, that's from the Goonies or that's from E.T. or I loved that or like – I literally saw a towel that I still own that I took from my parents in the movie. That's from probably like you know 1983, apparently. So no, it's actually your towel. They took. They came. Yeah. That's one of the unusual things that Netflix is doing. They're taking stuff from people's houses and then putting them in their shows. That's a wonderful idea because we'll watch. We'll be like, oh, that's my jewelry box. Um, but yeah, so it's all about nostalgia. One of the podcasts I listened to that was talking about it, you know. Some she was like their fashion is on point. I totally wore those roughly necked, um, high sort of I, I don't even know how to describe them uh, shirts. And they're like, and even when you were a teenager, you look like a forty year old secretary. Like it was great, and it was it's just people being like, yes, this is what life was like in nineteen eighty three for me. But so many people watching it weren't even like I have no nineteen eighty three. I was one. Well, not not nineteen eighty three, but you nineteen eighty nine wasn't that different. Yeah, right? true. Yeah. But I yeah. I do think like it's preying also on the nostalgia of the films from them because mm-hmm. like for me, right. my memory of the eighties is mostly created by things made in the eighties that I'm watching, and I think a lot of for a lot of people watching Stranger Things, it is kind of. It does. It has that Goonies vibe. Mm-hmm. I, I also got like a huge X-Files vibe from this. Like those early episodes, it all felt like some big setup. Like I kept waiting for like Mulder and Scully to pop in and help take care of this. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't I, I think it is. This is the summer of nostalgia for the 80s in so many ways, like Ghostbusters. And I, I, I feel that vibe all around. See, when we were talking about this online beforehand, I never got into the Goonies because I like, was the Goonies. This is like <laughs> yeah. exactly right in my sweet spot. Mm-hmm. In 1983, I was 14 years old. So I was a little older than the boys mm-hmm. and I was a little younger than the older sister. And I, I played Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. and so therefore there weren't a lot of girls around. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but but I mean I see everything about what my life was like right down mm-hmm. to the way the houses looked in mm-hmm. the style of carpeting, and what was in my sister's room, and what was up on the walls in my room, and it's it's just pitch perfect. And I can't, Colin. We were talking about whether or not the show's any good. I I can't even tell you. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if the show's any good. I can. It's just yeah. incre- it's it's incredibly detailed mm-hmm. in the way it documents what it was like to be alive at a certain time of a certain age, mm-hmm. kind of in the middle of all that. There's there's no nostalgia for the films uh, for me in it. It's my life. Mm. I mean, I. I I think it's not a good series, I, but I also get that, that we enjoy things that are not necessarily good. Things can be really, really fun if they're I not. I think re- Carolyn I mean, only enjoys things right. that are not good. Carolyn yeah. really <laughs> likes the Sharknado movies. So <laughs> I do. They're great. <laughs> so, 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 yes. I mean, Carolyn is living proof that yeah. we can all enjoy things. But we can all enjoy things that aren't particularly good. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that's sort of what's happening here. I, the one thing that I do that worries me a little bit, if that's the right way to say it, is, I mean, the, the – 
there's nothing wrong. I mean, artistry often occurs when people take other other people's themes and and play on them. But this isn't Charlie Parker playing Richard Rogers. It's more to me like a tribute band, you know, in, in a mid-sized bar that, that really these two guys, the Duffer brothers, they don't really have any original ideas. I mean, everything in here is a fundamentally unoriginal idea that's not particularly improved upon. And, you know, and if you really want to nerd out on this the way Jonathan McNichol has been doing, I mean, yeah, they're like at the level of fine detail, things are, are, are copied. And, you know, I just came to episode six where we learn a little of the backstory of this kind of semi-magical uh, creature uh, this little girl who's been living in somebody's closet, been hidden in somebody's closet, and as the person watching it with me pointed out, it's Firestarter. Yeah. It's exactly the backstory of Firestarter. And, and I think the difference is that ultimately – this is not an original idea with me. Stephen Metcalf from Slate said this too, that if you think back to what Spielberg really was, you know, what these movies were – they, they had an incredible humanity and pathos to them. You know, they really were about people who had incredible stakes on the line, you know, recognizable emotional stakes too. I mean, you know, E.T. is about a bunch of kids whose family is coming apart and they, they get this little special friend who they're going to lose. And at the end, you know, if you can sit today through the moment where E.T. reaches his finger out and says, Elliot, be good. If you can sit through that without <laughs> sobbing, you know, you, you are a better man than I. And I don't think this particular work of art has the capacity to make anybody sob. It's, it's, it's kind of a snack that you're eating. Yeah, I think, I think that you're absolutely right. It is a snack, but it's this – imagine putting together the most finely uh, constructed snack of all time. And, and you have all of this detail in there. And what if the concept is just to be this detailed – photocopy of something that many of us lived through that the Duffer brothers, by the way, didn't. I think they were born in the 1980s, so they don't have any original knowledge of any of this. It's nostalgia for them of a second of a second hand. But it's it's just meant to hit tripwires for people who love the music or love the clothes or love some of those movies. I mean, I wanted to say one of the first things I thought about, because this is a quote unquote horror premise set at this time, was my experience of that summer of Poltergeist. <laughs> Yes. Now, do you know the movie Poltergeist? I do, Okay, yeah. so the movie Poltergeist that came out, and I'm 14 years old, I was so scared by Poltergeist that I don't remember watching the movie. Mm -hmm. But I remember the night after I watched the movie as I played in my front yard and the sun was going down. And I remember thinking, I, I hope the sun doesn't go down because I don't want to go to bed because I'm so scared of the Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's how much that affected me at the time. And that's what I'm thinking about. And it's so good at that. That it, the dialogue and everything else doesn't matter. See, I'm older than you, and I saw the movie Poltergeist with my then wife, but we happened to go to the movie in separate cars. So, and I drove a little faster than she did on purpose. And I got home, and I opened all the drawers in the house, and I put the <laughs> dining room table chairs on the t dining room table, and like I did so that she, when she walked in the door, I mean, this wasn't why we got divorced. I was going to say, no the time wife. She was actually kind of entertained by things <laughs> like that, but 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 I mean, kind but pol but Poltergeist, which features a missing child who is communicating in a crackly way through transmissions mm -hmm. on other kinds of devices, I mean, is once again evoked with so little change. This is a movie for fanboys, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, a movie basically made for the kids who are in the, like those characters in the movie are grown up now and they're watching this. You know, they're kind of nerdy little kids who just like to play with in the audio visual room and, um, Dungeons and Dragons. In a basement. Yeah. Right here <laughs> and, um, and, you know, if they grew up now, they would totally watch this. That's what it's all about. I mean, it's 
it's not made to be great cinema. It's made to just be like, to oh, be, dude. dude it it is very watchable. Yeah. I will say that. And I actually, I know some people online were, you know, giving her a hard time. But I thought Winona Ryder was amazing in this. To be to be honest, I think this is one of the better things she's, <laughs> she's done. Because she kind of, you know, made a career at being able to play unhinged really well. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I had said this in an email, like the first scene that you see her, I was just kind of slammed with like, oh, my God, when did Winona Ryder become this middle aged frumpy yeah. woman <laughs> who may as well just be on that sitcom The Middle? Like at first, I just couldn't get past her being older. And then I, I really started to buy into her as a character. And I, I really thought her performance like anchored this for me, which I was I was excited for her because, you know, I, I think that this is a good vehicle for her as an actress. It's a good vehicle for her. I mean, it's a it's kind of a <clears throat> one note performance, as all of her performances have been. And yeah. so it's not as though she's stretching herself. No, yes. <laughs> but I did think she was better in it than, you know, well, she's like great Mr. Being... Deeds or something. That's <laughs> the last thing I can think she's of. She's great at being hysterical and annoying, which is what she, you know, like. Th- right. They, they yeah, might they, as well have just written. They found the note that she can sing really well. Yeah. And she she blasts it the whole time. But I, I, I did think she she was she was good at it. See, his pr- perspective is so important, and it's so amazing to me, Carolyn, to listen to you. I mean, we're, we're miles apart <laughs> on the age spectrum, so the idea that they they frumped her up. I had kind of the opposite reaction, which is it's kind of like when they supposedly had aged and disheveled Elizabeth Taylor for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading Mad Magazine saying, well, we wouldn't want our mother to look like that. Yeah. Our girlfriend, maybe, but not <laughs> our mother. So, and, and Winona Ryder, to me, who plays this single mom living in a shabby mm-hmm. house on the outskir- outskirts of town next to the really scary uh, government plant uh, and with a crummy job in retail, which is kind of funny all by itself, but, um, but with a, a, a funny, uh, a crummy job at a store where she works long hours for very little remuneration and smokes lots of cigarettes. To me, Winona Ryder, who in real life is 44 and a very youthful 44, I think, mm-hmm. she's, she's not as ravaged. As I would expect that person to be. No, and I think she's supposed to be a relatively young mother. I mean, she's got a 16-year-old, or what, he's got to be almost 18 or something like that. The older one. The older boy, he's 17 years old. Yeah, Right, so. So I guess just the thought of her having a 17-year-old was jarring to me because, you know, I still think of her as like. Well, Joyce gets started early. Yeah, 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 I guess so. (laughs) Let me ask you, a discussion did ensue online that I thought was very interesting about just sort of the notion of childhood adventure, that one of the things that we're seeing here that was perhaps also part of John's 1980s banana bike uh, childhood Mm -hmm. is just little boys running around essentially unsupervised, going out in the woods. Uh, None of these kids has a karate class or a Mandarin (laughs) Chinese uh, uh, class they have to go to after Mm -hmm. school. They're not enrolled in soccer programs. Instead, they're just making up their lives the way they want. To and I don't know. All of you had sort of very di- first of all, John. Was that also a, a familiar thing to you, as opposed to the the helicoptered life of oh, today's children? Oh my goodness, no! So we had acres and acres of woods out behind our, nope. our suburban house, and we could just wander into the woods mm-hmm. as long nope. as we wanted for days on. In the summertime, we would start early in the day, mm-hmm. and we would go all throughout the day, and we'd find secret caves, and we'd find mogs, bogs, and marshes, and we'd take gigantic hikes. Now we thought that this was as big as all of Pennsylvania, but it was like an acre, right? But we felt as though we were constantly on this adventure. We'd find Playboy magazines that someone had hidden in the the woods, and we would make up stories about things. This is exactly what it was like to live in the suburbs outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 1983. Yeah, I... I, for me, I grew up fearing the suburbs and <laughs> like and and rural areas. I grew up in Boston. We eventually then moved to Newton, which is not at all 
it, it, it's a suburb, but it's not really. Um, so I kind of grew up seeing things like this, movies like this, and thinking like, all right, well, the suburbs is where all the bad stuff happens. Like you go <laughs> wandering off in the woods to play with your friends and somebody never comes back. <laughs> that was, yeah. I had developed this intense uh, fear of, of wooded area. And still to this day, like living in Connecticut, if I'm driving at night through a dark country road, I feel really ill at ease. I feel I would feel safer in a... <laughs> but, but, but that is something that happened after that time. There, there became a fear mm-hmm. of the suburbs as a place where you could get abducted or right. a jogger could and go I think missing. That that, we did not have that. It, yeah. it hadn't really happened in our lives. That's, I think, the jump from like the early 80s to like the later 80s where, you know, I kind of started participating in civilization and life that you, you did have that fear because of, you know, like the John Walsh America's Most Wanted. And I had friends who had deep fears of being kidnapped. And I never... I, See, that came up in the emails, yeah. and I was surprised by that. I didn't... I mean, I'm sure it's absolutely true, but but that Adam Walsh might be a demarcation point, a psychological demarcation point for a, a lot of kids who grew up right around that time. I don't... I. I don't feel that way. I my childhood was much more like John's. My mom was just like, "Get out, come home for spaghettios in a couple hours, and then." Like, well, we, leave I again. was allowed outside. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, it was just not. You weren't running off into wooded areas. We, I mean, I, we didn't have an acre of woods, but we had like little patches of woods, like you'd cut through to get to someone else's house or something, or we'd spend all day sledding. And I, I don't know how we survived that, honestly. When I think back on that, because I've banged into more trees than anyone should be allowed to, and still be alive. But um, but I, we, but if you went to the neighborhood I grew up in now, it would still be like that, where if you went to a much more affluent neighborhood, it would not be like that. It's mostly because the parents cannot afford all of those programs and don't have time to watch them all the time. And they're just like, you know, just walk down the street to whoever's house and leave me alone for 10 minutes, please. You know, and the school is right in the middle of the neighborhood. So no one has to walk more than 10 minutes to get to school kind of thing. And everyone is doing it, which is the difference now. Right. You go to like a fancy neighborhood. Everybody's kids at soccer practice. So none of the kids are allowed outside because there's no other kids. They can't travel in packs and be safe. But kids you know? are going outside yeah. this summer thanks to Pokemon Go. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It, it took that. It, to it took that intervention. So I, I do want to say that I actually think you're all right. You're all mm-hmm. correct in, in different ways because I think this isn't so much pegged to one particular thing like Adam Walsh or or, or, or John Walsh, but but pegged. It, it's instead it's it's a, an eternal battle. You know, for as long as the probably there's been civilization, certainly for you know the last hundred years in America, there's been a battle between children who want to go out and play in the woods and various ideas about what else might be there. I mean, it's embedded in our fairy tales after all. I mean, it's Little Red Riding Hood. And, and I certainly grew up in a neighborhood that looked like Steven Spielberg had designed it for one of these movies. It had a patch of woods at the end of a street. There was literally a huge house, like a 30-room house that two people lived in, but they were caretakers. They didn't, you know, and there were woods. And, and then for a while, we couldn't go in the woods because there was this guy called the Green Man who was going around uh, essentially raping uh, people in their houses. And so because of the Green Man, we were all kind of pulled back away from the woods, uh, and we thought it was all kind of stupid. We it, it, Much much later, it turned out that Albert DeSalvo, before he became the Boston Strangler, was the green man. That was kind of his like oh, wow, his wow. early, you know, and he was operating in Connecticut. And so our parents were completely right about this. But mm-hmm. um, 
I think this is a battle. You know, it's an eternal human battle. Mm -hmm. Who gets to go in the woods? Who gets to go out and have adventures? Well, you know, that clip that we heard where the the cop is trying to explain that 99 times out of 100, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, see, the town I grew up in, it was a suburb, and almost everyone there was an engineer. The the dad was an engineer, and and the mom, my mom was, uh, she worked in a hospital. So they were both science people. And so for them, 99 times out of 100 is good enough to go let your kid out. For a lot of people, it's it's not. But in my neighborhood, everyone just assumed, oh, you're probably going to be safe because statistics show you're probably going to be safe. Just send them out with 100 kids in a pack of 100 kids and <laughs> hope right. they're not the one. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. There's always going to be one, but yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's we also live in an age where we're just constantly bombarded with the thing with these things. Like I've been I will be endorsing later some podcasts where they talk about a lot of murders. And this has been going on forever. Right. People have been getting abducted and killed and murdered, not by creepy not creatures, by sticky monsters. not sticky monsters that live in an underworld, but by other weird monsters, mostly humans. And it go, we're just bombarded with it now, and we're all, like, you know, riddled with anxiety. So we're, we're like, well, what if my kid is the one kid and I didn't do the thing to keep him safe? And so I've got a couple of other things that I want to talk about, too. And, uh, Carolyn, I'm going to, uh, one of the things I think you are kind of an expert on is the way people do enjoy something like this that's not necessarily high art, maybe not as low as Sharknado. <laughs> but, you know, there's a way in which, like, there's, there's I think uh, I think one of you might have been you, Carolyn, finding, like, a Tumblr or something that's devoted to this very minor character who mm-hmm. disappears pretty early. There's, you know, somebody else was sending out this kind of 8-bit uh, emoji of, of this amusingly uh, toothless kid who's one of the four uh, protagonists. You know, there's a way in which once you realize that this isn't Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. you know, you can start to have fun with it at, at a sort of lower stakes level. Yeah, I, I think that that, one of the things that when a show like this with Netflix where it isn't on a network, I think one of the things that gives it traction is you know, when it becomes part of this social media BuzzFeed culture mm-hmm. and then everyone starts feeding into that. Uh, the first I, I had seen this show like pop up as a suggestion on Netflix, but I hadn't watched it yet. And then I started seeing and, and my my roommate cheated on me and watched it without me. And I was filled with rage. And he was watching it because he saw all these people posting about the wig that they put on. <laughs> Um, the character L and you know and he's a gay man and all these gay men and hairdressers were like where did she get this lace front wig where did these 12 year old boys find this perfect flawless wig to get on her and why did this boy know how to do makeup and it was in the costume bin duh. right but like your, your Halloween wig does not look like that like it's you know all, all spazzy and so I, I mean when something latches on and gets cultural attraction where people are talking about it on a level like that it then draws people in to watch it and, and I think it changes the way you watch it because my first you know my my first (laughs) sites for this for this were about this like wig scene and all these other kind of like ridiculous like the barb character so you're introduced to it in such a weird backwards way well barb is basically martha plimpton from goonies right she's the sort of friend who is like why are we doing this blah and she is like why you don't want to be the frumpy friend. Yeah, yeah, the, so. <laughs> the, yeah the tag along. Who's, uh, now, you know, but back to your point, John, this is a series so much about curation. Mm-hmm. You know, 
know, it's, it's about, about the physical and, and nostalgic curation of the past. So it's not a big surprise that people start nerding out, you know, about whether it's the right wig or not. Well, the, it's, it's strange <laughs> that the wig is something that actually, I, I, of course, never would have thought of the wig. But there's many yeah. other things that I, that I have been seeing in this. And I don't know. I, I think that some of those details, because they're so right, after the course of about four episodes, then you start to see the things that are all quite wrong and where some of the styles don't exactly mesh up because you're, you're hit with all this nostalgia at once and then you realize there's some things about the dialogue that they don't get right. I mean, mm-hmm. I will just say that if you trailed a, around a bunch of 12-year-old boys in 1983, some of, the, some of the words they say are the words that were said in the show. But there are an awful lot of words that you can't put on a show right now that the boys would say over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And they were really unfortunate choices. We didn't make good choices about the way we, right. we talked about things. And there's a lot of homophobic language that was used by 12-year-old boys in 1983 mm-hmm. that probably if you were going to make an homage to that time, you would, it would be laced throughout this, uh, the conversation. So there's some things that get kind of wrong that I'm noticing more as I go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm told I'm allowed to bounce one more idea around the table uh, before we go to break here. <laughs> I think the idea I like to, uh, to bounce around is the notion of this being a hit, Teresa. One of the things that's complicated, and I did share some um, mm-hmm. some links about this with you guys, is Netflix doesn't really actually release audience numbers. There's another sp- uh, startup company that claims to be able to kind of guesstimate Netflix mm-hmm. numbers. But it's sort of interesting because it's, it is that uh, unreliable metric of everybody I know. But like every, everybody we know, uh, if we are a certain kind of person, mm-hmm. is watching this show. And maybe that's just enough to make it a hit, whether the numbers are hit numbers or not. Well, I... You know, I was thinking about that because you mentioned that before in our emails, and I was like, I don't actually know that everyone I know is watching this. No one has actually spoken to me about it except for when you sent out this email and we (laughs) decided to talk about it on the show. And I had actually told my boyfriend, who's a couple years older than me, and so he remembers the 80s better than me. And I told him, you're going to love this because he has an encyclopedic knowledge of all these 80s movies, and he, like, didn't watch it. And then finally, the other night, right after we were talking about doing the show, he said, hey, did you watch this already? Because <laughs> I'm going to I I'm like two episodes in now. And I was like, yes, I watched it, but I might watch it again. And now and he liked it quite a lot. He binged it. He stayed up till God knows what time and couldn't function the next day. But no one else has said anything other than I, I'm reading about it in the blogosphere that I'm seeing stuff on Facebook. I'm seeing stuff. But no one I actually know has watched it. And so. I don't know, you know, and whether or not it's really a hit. I don't know. I I got the Katie Tolarski. Have you seen Stranger Things? I was like, sure. No, no. no. <laughs> she always does this, and so I have to then watch it. But it's it's usually like one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I guess I I had a fair amount of people in my like circle of friends on Facebook who were watching it, and over, over the past couple of weeks, so I had seen those posts. But again, I don't. I, I don't know. Based on on the people I know, I don't know if that's something that we can say, like, everyone is watching this. But, but I think your point, Colin, is, is do we know through metrics in the same way we'd know about a big opening night mm-hmm. or, you know, movie uh, preview? I don't I don't know about that. And maybe part of it is just the, the machine that gets built up around this new type of binge watching. As long as enough people say that everyone's watching it, well, then it must be successful, right? Right. And I, I do think, I mean, there's uh, two things that happen. I think when something is just pitched perfectly at 
at a particular demographic. That demographic will find out about it. And so mm-hmm. in our newsroom, where there are a lot of people kind of in the right age demo, it turned out just, you know, we mentioned it the other day that we were doing this show and heads swiveled around. And <laughs> Lucy Nalpavanchel, Katie Tularski, Heather Brandon, a whole bunch of people in the newsroom are all watching it. And the other thing is you don't want to be the conversational equivalent of Barb, too. If everybody that you know <laughs> is talking about something, you, you absolutely, if you want to stay in the conversation, you kind of have to watch it. So that, so that doubles down on the everybody I know phenomenon. All right. The show is Stranger Things. You can decide on your own whether to watch it or not. If you watch one episode, you'll probably watch the other seven because Netflix doesn't even give you much of a chance to opt out of binge watching. Uh, So anyway, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about something a little more serious. So the Olympics are always kind of strange, and this has maybe been an especially strange Olympics, uh, some surprisingly inspiring moments. Uh, whoever thought Michael Phelps would make us feel good about Michael Phelps again, but he kind of has. Um, and then there have been some pretty horrible moments. Some of them we knew we were, com- we knew were coming in the run-up to the Olympics, but the Daily Beast, uh, an online publication, kind of caught us by surprise. Uh, a story uh, published by a writer, Nico Hines, uh, who significantly is straight. Uh, it, it was a, a piece about dating and hookup apps being used at uh, the Olympic Village. The Olympic Village, there have been other pieces of journalism in past Olympics about how the Olympic Village is kind of this enormous sex farm at one point, all these kind of attractive, <laughs> agile, healthy uh, people taking um, healthy and agile interests in one another. Uh, but Heinz used apps like Tinder and Grinder to pose as an athlete looking for dates, and then he collected up his interactions, uh, took away the names, but maybe not all the identifying information, uh, and published a piece about how easy it was to find people when to engage in casual sex among the Olympic athletes. It has caused an enormous stir. Uh, The um, Daily Beast has ultimately um, kind of backed away from it. First of all, they re-edited the piece and put an editor's note up there, kind of semi-standing by the story. And then last night, they took the story down entirely. They've replaced it with uh, a, I think, pretty abject apology for ever having done it. Uh, so, uh, John, I'm going to have you kick things off as uh, the journalist uh, who uh, is the most outraged by this, uh, although everybody on the panel is completely outraged by it. So, yeah. And look, and, and yeah. we're probably all outraged for some of the same reasons. I, I, As I read the retraction or whatever, the note from our editors, which ends with the words, we will do better, I thought to myself, we will do better what? Mm-hmm. The next time we decide to tell a story that doesn't matter, we will tell it better. The next time we endanger people's lives or their identities or even just some of their personal freedoms, we will do better. It, the, the notion that this was an assignment that anyone would take, uh, given Collins' setup, that yes, there are a bunch of attractive athletes from around the world who may indeed engage in sex with one another, that is news how. Mm-hmm. I just, from the, from the start of when the first person had the pitch to say, this is the story I want to do, to this horrifying note that they put up in order to retract it, it is just a train wreck from start to finish. And I just, mm-hmm. I can't even, in this they say, we did not uphold a deep set of the Daily Beast's values. I have no idea after this what those values are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the first questions I had was, why do they need apps at all? The athletes, I, like the, my first, you know, you're just surrounded by good-looking people who will probably have sex with you. So what they, are you doing I mean, with year apps? Year after year, you hear then, how they run out of condoms. Yeah, right. yeah. I was like, is so, it really that hard? You, everybody, what, <laughs> why are you bothering with Grinder right now? But then, well, you can fish in a bigger pond. Yeah, you can, but why would you want to when you have athletes? 
you know, Olympic athletes you could be having sex with. Well, I mean, they're also, yeah. I mean, I suppose Grindr and Tinder mm-hmm. allow you to separate uh, sheeps from goats or however you want to, yes, you know, yeah. I mean, if you're going after a particular <laughs> kind of experience. Uh, <laughs> but then, you know, uh, the main horrifying thing, like, it's never good for journalists to be outing people, you, you know, unless maybe they're a politician who is actively sort of campaigning against gay rights or something like that. But in this case, they, as you mentioned, they literally endangered people's lives because these were not people in the United States. These are people from countries who are um, not necessarily very gay friendly. And in some places, it's literally a crime to be gay. So, I, I mean, just the the complete lack of human decency in this story is a forget journalism. You are a terrible person for doing this story. Yeah. I was just flabbergasted that this even who came up with this and then and pitched it. And then everyone said, oh, this is going to be a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it it just it was so slimy and and it's not really news like we know these these athletes are partying and i remember reading an article a couple olympics ago about how you know once they are done competing i mean they are it is just a free for all party and you know what they deserve it yeah. you go and do whatever you are going to do you slam into those other athletes like drink all you want i don't care and and this just was so it, it, it just felt unnecessary and and really I, I was so grossed out when I when I heard this and, and saw and I, I was relieved to see so many people outraged on Twitter. Okay, so, and- so since I'm the host, I have to do the like the thing where me, maybe I try to find a counter argument here. <laughs> oh, although I'd much rather be sitting around the table with you. <laughs> here we go. Well, well yeah. I, uh, if I were since I have to do that, yeah. um, the counter argument I, I maybe would try to muster would be the one that sort of says and I would say, by the way, this is, would be at the pre-conscious or subconscious level on the part of the Daily Beast, its editors, its writer. Um, but but that maybe it plays out this way anyway, is that we live in a world full of apps and other kinds of electronic devices that we don't really understand very well. We use them. It's, it's like we were driving every day across bridges that have never been inspected by anybody since their completion. We don't know how they work that well. Uh, we are taking tremendous risks quite frequently when we're using them. The risk that you take when you use Tinder and Grindr outside the Olympic Village is still pretty high, right? You're going to be, you could be running into a sticky monster uh, or, or something along those lines. You don't always know. And one of the things that comes out of this piece in the most you know, horrid way possible, obviously, and, and damaging and risky to the athletes who live in country, countries like Tonga, where, as everybody's saying, it's much more dangerous to be gay than it is here. Not that it's risk-free to be gay in this country either. But one of the things that comes out of this is you have to be more careful. You absolutely, these are not safe devices, you know. This, in this case, you were being very easily trolled by a re- an unscrupulous reporter from perhaps but an unscrupulous Catfish, site. The show Catfish on MTV and the, the do- original documentary film, they've already taught us that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this <laughs> we have tons of information that shows that in, in a safer way that sends that, that teaches that lesson. I mean, I think we know, right, that we're being watched all the time as anytime we're using one of these devices. And if you don't know that, you should know that. But we don't expect that a journalist, someone whose profession it is to to inform us to go and use that to their advantage in a really sticky, slimy, gross way. Now, yeah, you may go out on a Tinder date and get murdered. That's the risk you're taking. But you could but it, you don't assume that one of those risks is that a journalist is going to invade your privacy. Well, and, and from the journalist standpoint, you can't make the assumption that this, just because it is a story that is available to be told, mm-hmm. is a story that should be told. I mean, mm-hmm. we kind of have a thing. 
it's not too dissimilar from what doctors have, which is do no harm, right? Mm -hmm. We're just supposed to think about it before we tell the story, which is why we sometimes don't use the names of people when we could use their names because we want to make sure that they don't get into a bad situation afterward. This is one in which from the start to the end, there was only going to be harm. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to go undercover, if you're going to use not your real name, there is a list as long as my arm of things that are wrong with the Rio Olympics, from the way the stadiums got built to the yeah. public corruption that happened around them to the quality of the water. If you're going to go undercover, go try to figure out why some people living in in a, a slum outside of Rio are still living in that condition after this big thing comes there. Don't do this to try to figure out how grinders going to work for a bunch of <laughs> teen handball players from some country where it's not really okay to come back to a story that you're gay. That's mm-hmm. just not good journalism. And as you said, it's just being a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem that the, the Daily Beast, I, I, you wonder if people can learn from things. And you, if any good could ever come out of uh, as flawed a concept yeah. of this, maybe the good would be, well, you know, this could have been the Tonga secret police, you know, checking out what you, Mr. Swimmer, are doing in the Olympic Village and when you're from a country where it's not okay to do these things. So maybe everybody learns a little lesson about that, that it could be the Tonga secret police. The next time you use Tinder or Grindr, maybe be a little bit more careful. Make sure you're being smart about this. But the counter argument to that is the Daily Beast should have learned from Gawker. Yeah, <laughs> no. I was just about to say, didn't Gawker teach us this? I was on the nose when we talked about that. Uh, I just I cannot wrap my head around this situation. I I have nothing to say. I'm actually speechless on something like this that it can it it could happen. Yeah. I mean, just to remind people. So Gawker lost this uh, huge judgment uh, involving the publication of a sex sex tapes of a famous person. Oh, I wasn't even a somewhat somewhat athletic. person. I wasn't even thinking about that because they had another thing where they they outed like he was like a CEO or something, someone at some company. Peter Peter Thiel. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I was thinking. Well, there's that, too. I I guess I'm wondering, you know, he he funded the lawsuit that bankrupt or that nearly bankrupted them. Yeah, we we, we were talking in the last segment about what makes a hit. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we know people are actually caring about stranger things? What makes an article? that you know is going to be something that people like or click on or whatever. Why is something why do you decide to do something? We've got a lot of different reasons to do it. Mm-hmm. One could be, as you say, Colin, to try to teach us all a lesson. Maybe we can learn how to use this technology better. I'm gonna bet that the Click-bait. first thousand things that they mm-hmm. thought about were not that. No. Mm-hmm. And the thousand and first thing maybe maybe was, but it was oh, all no, about this is all, all about clicks. Click-bait. It's all about clicks. And here's the thing if it's all about clicks, who's who exactly is reading the article? That's, I mean, who, yeah. who's the person who wants this, this piece of stuff mm-hmm. that we're making? And so if people want that and people want to click on that, then we maybe have to look at ourselves a little bit about whether or not that's something that we want to consume mm-hmm. and yeah. stop consuming that stuff. I think that was part of the confusion for me. Who did they think they were – who do they think they were targeting yeah, that was going to get excited yeah. by yeah. finding out that, you know, some swimmer is gay? Yeah. I mean, it, who cares? Do it <laughs> well, pe- people will click on an article that says that mm-hmm. other famous people are having sex. I mean, it yeah. just sort of works out that way. All right. We should probably stop there. Uh, but uh, thanks very much for this discussion. We're going to come back. We're going to do a few endorsements. You know, I only recently realized that Grinder was not a way to order submarine sandwiches, but, you know, when I did, it explained a lot of weird experiences that I had. 
Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Matthew Modine. Don't miss an episode of our show. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn, and like our Facebook page, The Colin McEnroe Show. On Monday, we'll be back with a sarcastic scramble. And now, back to Colin. Yes, that's the other thing that I learned this week, is that no matter what horrible or actionable thing that you've done, in fact, I don't know why the Daily Beast didn't think of just saying, oh, we were being sarcastic, uh, because that is, of course, uh, it's your get-out-of-jail-free card this week. I was being sarcastic. So I should have suggested this, because near the end of our lengthy email uh, discourses that spanned uh, many days, uh, we sort of started talking about like all the terrible uh, TV that Carolyn likes to watch, and then talking about the other <laughs> terrible things that we like to watch. And I should have said all the endorsements have to be our own guilty, lazy, lazing on the couch or whatever the, the phrase was, uh, guilty pleasures. But they don't have to be. Although, Teresa, you're, you're going to take us halfway there with these podcasts. Yeah, I don't feel guilty about this at the least. I love <laughs> these things. I've been binging on them for like two weeks. If the NPR ratings have dropped, I'm sorry. That's me. I'm just uh, listening to a podcast called My Favorite Murder, and it is in the comedy section, which is disturbing. But it's two women basically just talking about all their favorite murder stories. And... Um, if you are at all offended by people being funny and talking about sometimes like mass murders, you probably don't want to listen to it. But I think it's hilarious. Who would be offended by that? <laughs> and strangely enough, there is another podcast called The Last Podcast on the Left, which is sort of the same thing. Only they will also talk about like Bigfoot and conspiracy theories and stuff like that, too. And who, who are the women on the first podcast? Are they comedians? Um, or? Yes, they're comedians. It's Karen Kilg- Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. And it's kind of funny because Georgia's mostly into the murders so that she can figure out how not to get murdered. It's like mm. an anxiety thing for her. And so listening to her talk about them is great. I mean, they're they're very empathetic towards the actual victims, but at the same time, they're, you know, there's a cat roaming around making weird noises, and there's all sorts of other funny stuff going on. You've actually succeeded mm-hmm. in making me want to listen to this. Okay. And I feel bad I feel bad about that, though. I don't feel good about it, but, but I do want to listen to it. It's actually good. She got yeah. me hooked on yeah, okay. it. My, my favorite murder? My favorite murder, right. yeah. Uh, Mr. Dankowski, what do you have for us? Well, I will actually take you up on this uh, sort of trip down memory lane and guilty pleasures, Colin, because, you know, we were talking a little bit about the music, and some people love the music uh, in Stranger Things, and some people hate the music in Stranger Things, essentially, and, and you heard a little bit of a coming out of that segment. It's all synthesizers. It's bleeps and drones and very kind of spooky 19, late, late 70s, early 1980s synthesizer sounds. And, you know, you might like that music. And if you do like that music, there's a real band. There's a real band that I loved all throughout, all throughout my, my high school years. And the band is Tangerine Dream. And Tangerine Dream is an electronic band from Germany that had, went through many different iterations. But they actually, you know, connecting back to that, they did the, um, the theme music for Firestarter. They actually did the, the, uh, the music for Firestarter and for Risky Business. No, not, not the big hit song in there. But they provided the soundtrack of so many uh, early 1980s. Two Michael Mann movies. I mean, two Michael Mann movies. There's a bunch of these. Thief, Thief and Manhunter. Have you? Yes, and from Flashpoint, uh, they have a they have a series of records before that though that are quintessential, you know, kind of uh, German electronic music that guys who don't have girlfriends listen to in the 1980s. That was me. And I I highly recommend anyone who loves Stranger Things and the music soundtrack. That's exactly what you need to go find. 
everything from about 1970 through about 1988. Actually, Guys Who Don't Have Girlfriends was John's tribute band to Tangerine Dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, no, no one showed up at my you know, Several people have suggested, they're like, you should choreograph something, create a contemporary ballet using that music from yeah. Stranger Things. Or that. So now I'm I will so that. score that for yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. so maybe I, I will have to look into that. Um, I actually was going to endorse uh, cheesy, <laughs> lazy couch watching TV. Um, it's on Netflix. My crazy ex girlfriend. It is hilarious. I've heard about that. It is so funny, uh, and the music in it is is really fun. The songs are kind of, you know, there's things like about a song where it's like a yoga teacher, kind of her journey of being a ridiculous yoga teacher, and just everything. Listen, watch it, listen to it. It's spectacular and. Just crappy TV in general is my endorsement. There's nothing that's too bad yes. to watch. Binge without shame. Um, so um, I guess I, I I thought that I will then. I've actually already endorsed this once. It was after our Tarzan discussion. But I, I have now watched the entire season of Animal Kingdom, uh, which is uh, an adaptation of an Australian movie in which Jackie Weaver, I think, was nominated for an Oscar for her fabulous kind of Jocasta meets Cruella de Vil uh, characterization of this this controlling, uh, edibly inappropriate criminal mom. Uh, that is now Ellen Barkin in this series. Uh, she is amazing. She answers the question, what do you do when you've had too much, cosme- co- much cosmetic surgery? You play somebody who has had too much cosmetic surgery, the kind of person who would have anyway. Uh, so she's great and the series is uh, stupid enough probably to make Carolyn happy. Uh, it has made me very happy in my lazy time on the couch. And I've got an extra minute. This is not exactly an endorsement because I, you can't really act on it right in a way. In fact, you missed your chance to act on it uh, this week. But um, uh, the next time you get a chance, uh, I was up in Cape Cod at a writer's conference last weekend. And so Lyle Lovett was playing at a um, one of those musical tents where the mm-hmm. stage slowly turns around, which are all very, very retro. The and melody they're, tent? They're the melody tent, yeah. yeah. And it, it, that's a great thing anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really stupid, but it's a great thing. Uh, and probably very, you know, Stranger Things uh, era in its uh, concern. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I saw him up there. He also played right after that in New Haven. Um, it, it was, you know, I mean, every once in a while, there's sort of a concert that's a little bit more than a musical concert. It's kind of a spiritual experience. Well, I mean, a lot of the songs that he plays in concert are spirituals or gospel songs or so there's that. But the way this man interacts with his musicians and, and particularly with a large band, you know, what musicians, they sort of usually go, well, on drums, we got so and bass over here and playing the trumpet. We got he doesn't do that. He stops at various times in the concert concert and picks out a couple of musicians and talks to them and tells their story. There's a guy he's got who played in the some of the earliest Muscle Shoals ensembles and played uh, alto sax with Jimi Hendrix before anybody knew who Jimi Hendrix was. I mean, he just – this is such a gentle guy. So many of his musicians also have been with him since – one of these guys was rooming with him in the 1970s. <laughs> a lot of these guys were, have been with him since the 1980s, since the setting of Stranger Things. And you just – the graciousness of this man. And the, his music is really – just fabulous too, but uh, th- this ensemble that he plays with, which has four horns and and you know lots of other stuff along with it, this incredible uh, gospel singer named Francine Reed, uh, who tours around with him, has been w- with him forever. You just it, it's a musical experience, but it's also kind of, just kind of a lesson on how to treat people. You know, you can just see that he knows how to treat people. He knows how to. That's how he got Julia yeah. Roberts to marry him. <laughs> well, and <laughs> it's a great endorsement. I mean, the endorsement calling is really, and I have to just go see Lyle Love it if you can. In yeah. any in any form of his band, I've seen the small band, you just have to go see him. He puts on the best show. It really right. is. I got to see him actually at the Bushnell with three other songwriters, John Hyatt, Joe Eli, and Guy Clark, who just died recently. In fact, um, Lyle's co- uh, concert these days is a big tribute to 
guy, to a guy, but they each just played songs, and the other three would listen, you know? And then they'd talk about the song, and they'd play another song. And that was amazing, too. So, yes, thanks very much to Teresa Kramer, Carolyn Payne, John Dankosky. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble, being really sarcastic in order to get out of trouble. The whole cast of Stranger Things is amazing, but I gotta say, Winona Ryder totally steals $4,000 worth of clothes. I mean, the show. She steals the show. Show. <laughs>